0: Please be seated. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. I'll also invite you to do so quickly because apparently I'm on the clock. Um, And and while you're turning there, let me also just highlight again something that Camper uh, highlighted a moment ago, which is about our supper clubs. Uh, It's uh, said that there are three conversions necessary in the Christian life. Ultimately, it's the conversion to Christ, faith and trust in Him, the relationship with Him also with that is the conversion to his church or to be part of the community where we are living together with others. And to do that, we need to know one another. And then also with that is that we be converted to his mission, that we be engaged in the advancement of the gospel uh, through the kingdom. Uh, The Supper Clubs are designed to help us as a church community to deal with that second part. In a church that has two services and different life stages, we don't necessarily all connect uh, at at, at particular times. And so the whole point of this is to just get people together to mix and match uh, so they can get to know one another. And through that, friendships have been developed, not only here but other churches that are doing this. And so we don't want them to be something that is like a chore or something like that. But it's an opportunity to build friendships that you wouldn't necessarily ordinarily get in the course uh, of, the, of the day. And so we really encourage you that, uh, to sign up for that. Students, it's open for you as well. Um, chances are it's a free home-cooked meal as opposed to uh, you having to do anything for that. And so it's opportunity for you to meet people that are probably not going to come to RUF. And if they do, um, you'll think, who are those old people, um, even if they're 30? Uh, but uh, So anyway, all right, uh, I assume by now. You've already found John chapter 8, but uh, we, uh, it's just part of the whole life as the church. Our passage this morning is John chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In the word of our God. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, as we come to you and continue in our worship, we worship you now by giving to you uh, not only our attention, uh, our minds, but even open our hearts. We pray that you would speak your word to us that you have recorded and that you would not only enable us to know more, but that we would see better both of the world and of ourselves, and that your word, whether it brings conviction or comfort, would ultimately lead us into Christ, being shaped to be like him and to bring glory and honor to you and the joy that is found in Christ to us. Lord, be at work that we would worship you in this time that we learn and as our lives are lived out in worship to you. We pray all things in the name of Jesus Christ our Redeemer, our King, and the Word incarnated. Amen. In 1993, uh, a Los Angeles Times reporter, and and actually still an intern reporter named Jennifer Toth, captured the imagination of much of America when she published an essay in a a book form uh, that was titled The Mole People. In the book, Mole People, what she sought to do was to document the hidden communities that were residing in the network of forsaken tunnels and caverns and and shafts underneath New York City and particularly in Manhattan. And So she desired to tell their stories and so she wrote about her experiences uh, and just talked about what the people were like, uh, were living underground. And she described, you know, the organization of an underground society, and compounds that sometimes consisted of several thousand people. And she said, in a in a community where babies were born and normal life was lived, that it had elected officials, hot water, and sometimes even electricity, which I assumed was off the grid. And so this is what she described, this whole network of communities that are living beneath the ground in in this case in, in New York City um, rather than coming up to the surface. And I, I suspect it was the idea of the mole people that captured the imagination because it, it gives people some ideas of, of just kind of creepy things that are there lurking uh, beneath us. And, some people had said that rumors began after the, this book came out that the, the, some of the mole people were, were cannibals or that they were able to see in the dark and, you know, like owls at night, just things that came straight out of a, of a horror movie, although most of those were not suggested from the book. But the book itself received a, a fair amount of criticism, and some of it was quite sharp. Uh, The criticism came for what some would say are its inconsistencies, but one other critic was a little bit more pointed as he made this statement. Every fact in the book that I can verify independently is wrong. In other words, the, the charge of the critics is that an awful lot of this was fictionalized, and she used her imagination and created a story based on the reality of people that were living underground. And that may be true, and from a documentary standpoint, that would be inappropriate. But one thing remains clear, that there are people that are living underground, not only in New York City, but subsequently we understand that in many of the large cities that have underground systems throughout the United States, and also to be true in Europe, that she had brought to attention the fact that there are people who choose to live underground in the darkness rather than up on the surface in under the light. The reason it's intriguing to me is because it also is an intriguing metaphor for what God describes this world that we live in or what we have made of it. Because ever since the fall of our first parents into sin, God's description throughout all of the Old Testament about humanity and the world that we have created, he uses the word of darkness. We're told that people walk in darkness because we've been alienated from God, and what we do is not according to his holiness. And that's really is characteristic. Isaiah is quite pointed about that when he talks about the promise of the one who is to come. He said that, look, there were people who were walking in darkness. They saw a great light. And John picks up on this theme in, in his book here, in this, in this gospel, because in John chapter 3, John points out something that is... Uh, both hopeful and discouraging at the same time, when, when he says, look, the light has come into the world, and yet people love the darkness more than they love the light. Most of us don't have to use our imaginations to just to be thinking about the world in which we live in or the culture in which we live in and, and to see it as dark, and then for some of us it, it seems to be getting even darker still. But what we need to understand that it is into that darkness that Jesus Christ stepped into. And as he says in our text this morning... In, against that darkness he declares I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life as glorious as this promise is someone might wonder okay that's nice but why is it necessary and it may be because we have even if we get used to the darkness darkness has its effects upon us and most of us have experienced it at some point or another I read not long ago about an affliction that is fairly common in certain parts of the world and even certain uh, places in in the United States, which is called seasonal affective disorder. And what seasonal affective disorder is is this, it is a, a, a disorder that certain people experience who live in climates that usually uh, that tend to be darker than others. In other words, there are people who have normal mental health most of the time, but there are certain things that trigger it within seasons, and most of the time it's the coming of winter when the days become much lo- shorter and the nights become much longer. And it's particularly uh, prevalent in places where the nights become longer than the daytime. In, in Alaska, the, uh, uh, it- 10% of the people apparently are affected by it, whereas. In Florida and other southern states, it's only about 1% of the people who have this disorder. And so in northern Alaska and some of the other northern hemisphere cultures, people, and people have been living in these cultures for centuries, millennia, uh, and it's getting diagnosed at this point, but these people experience, because of the darkness, just great and intense depression and all the characteristics that go along with that. And the same is true for us, and I think what it tells us is that what's true physiologically, is also true for us spiritually. While we may be comfortable because we are used to a world that may seem dark, and we may be uncomfortable with the light, the darkness itself is also threatening to do us in, and we are longing for something that will be able to deliver us from that darkness and from the depression that comes from it, so that we would be able to live and truly have life. And so it's against that backdrop that we need to hear Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And that we have three key phrases in this text, particularly uh, all of them in, in verse 12, that I think really highlight what we need to see, both in the claim that Jesus is making and, and the promises that uh, we uh, th- that would pertain to us. The first phrase is this, I am the light of the world. The second phrase is, whoever follows me. And then the f- third phrase is, will have the light of life. And so let's begin with, Jesus' statement is, I am the light of the world. And the first thing that I I think that we need to notice is how particular Jesus is here. He's saying, I am the light of the world. He is not saying, I am a light in the world. The significance is tremendous there. Because we all tend to understand instinctively the idea of light that is needed in this world. A number of years ago, I think it was during the presidency of the first George Bush, and we had some cultural difficulties going on, both international and and locally, and and his key phrase was to challenge people to become points of light. And what he meant by that was to do something good for somebody else. And in, in doing something good for others, then you would become a point of light, and the implication is against the darkness of our world and our culture, or of evil. And it's a a very worthwhile thing. And I don't want to minimize the importance of our doing those things or to suggest that we don't become points of light when we do that. When we have need, when we are in darkness, when we feel overwhelmed, we feel very thankful for people who come in, step in, who help us or to do what we cannot do, who help to deliver us. And so we have no difficulty acknowledging they brought light into our life. Those of us who see the world and our lives through a lens of faith, we have very little difficulty then recognizing that God in his providence sent those people, whether they are coming in faith and are believers themselves or whether they uh, are just coming because they they want to help. God commissions his people, but he also organizes uh, things as an expression of common grace. And so the lights in the world come to both the believers and the unbelievers and consist of both believers and unbelievers. And it's a very important thing. And yet what we need to understand is every one of those is necessary, but any of them, and even collectively, they are but a candle in a vast cavernous black hole. They might enlighten something close, but in terms of enlightening, and they flicker and they go out. They only last a short period of time. What Jesus is declaring is something that is very clear, very definitive, and is universally to be accepted because he's making a very specific claim. I am the light of the world. In other words, everything else is but a pale comparison to him. But he is the real deal. He is the true. He is the exclusive light that comes into the world. And by making that exclusive claim, Jesus is making some very important claims about himself. Claims that the people that heard him certainly recognized. And claims that demand that we who hear them respond one way or another. Now, the first claim that Jesus was making by using the statement that I am the light of the world is that he is God's provision to the world. So we need to understand the context here is still the feast of the tabernacles or festival of the booths. We've been talking about it for quite a while, but it's a week-long festival celebrating God's provision for his people while they were wandering in the wilderness. And there are three major imageries that are conveyed that permeate the entirety of the week and all of the celebrations that go. One is the manna that God provided for his people. Day in and day out, he fed his people. They were in the wilderness. They're in the desert. There's not, a, not much way to you know, grow food. And even if you could build, grow food, you're moving the next day. So, you know, you wouldn't be there to see it at harvest time anyway. But every day God provided for them through the manna and, and the quail. And so the people celebrated God's providence to them of the manna. And that was one of the points that they celebrated in the Feast of the Tabernacles. You need to recognize that Jesus has said of himself that he is the bread of the world. And so he, he, he identifies as the point there. They celebrate the water, that while they're wandering in the desert, they would get quite thirsty, and there's no way of getting water, and so God provided water that came out of a rock through Moses uh, uh, wrapping it, and then uh, later on, commanding Moses to speak to it. And, And so they celebrate the fact that God provided for them water, and Jesus, at the point of that celebration, stands up, as we saw a few weeks ago, and declares, I am the living water, and he's identifying with that. And here... The other third aspect is that they celebrate light, that God provided light for the people in order to protect them. And it would be easy if they're anything like us in Israel to think that while they're wandering and while, you know, they, whenever they get tired of it, and it's 40 years of this, I've not done 40 years of anything consistently. 40 years of this to think, you know, maybe God's forsaken us. I mean, they didn't have their best life now, you know, somebody's probably preaching that to them. And yet every day, or every night, rather. God demonstrated his presence with them by providing them a, a, a pillar of light, a pillar of fire. It provided light for them to be able to, that gave them warmth that they needed and was able to guide them and give them illumination that they needed, and that was with them every single day. So even while they were wandering, God was constantly reminding them that he was present and providing for them. And at the Feast of the Tabernacle, scholars and historians tell us that in order to celebrate that light that permeates all things, while they were preparing for this festival, they would bring in workmen who would build an incredibly large candelabra. It had 16 different points of light on it. And as the sun was setting each day of the festival, they would have young boys who would climb up and light every one of the, the, the 16 oil-lit uh, things, and uh, lights, whatever they are, wicks, And it was said to illuminate not just the courtyard where it was, but the light shines so bright that it spread out into the countryside over the campgrounds where the people were were staying and could be not only seen for a long way, but people were able to function according to that. And that was to symbolize the light. Now, most scholars would say that where we are in our text now, what's going on is Jesus, the last day, the great day of the feast has already come and is gone. And so now we're looking at the day after the feast. And so what's going on here in Jerusalem, and Jesus is coming back in teaching, you've probably been to, whether a music festival or some other kind of thing where there's just a huge event that, that took a lot of preparation for, and if you go the day after, it's kind of dead, and yet there are workmen who are just deconstructing things and picking up, picking up the trash, putting things in, and, and taking things apart. And so what is believed to be taking place here is while Jesus is engaging with people and people going about their business, the workmen are taking everything down, and so very likely the, the workmen were taking down this candelabra, and it's one of those things that people are going about their business but also conscious of what was going on beside, behind them, and it is with that understanding and with that going on in the background that Jesus is saying, you know that light? That's coming down, but I am the light of the world, and he is, by making that claim, identifying himself as the object that that whole celebration was about he 's saying that I am the reason we have this celebration it 's pointing to me i 'm the fulfillment of the whole reason it was given and the reason we 're celebrating it because I am god 's provision for this world and if that wasn 't audacious enough, they was making another claim that was even uh, more bold that they clearly recognized. Because he was claiming to be not just the provision of God, but God himself. Because the scriptures tell us God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. And it's universally understood that when we're thinking of God, that he is light. And so when Jesus is claiming that he's not a light in the world, but he is the light of the world, that he was claiming to be the one and only God. Understandably, Jesus got a lot of pushback on this from the Pharisees. And we see that unfolding in verses 13 and following. And, And the reality is, is the Pharisees... We're right to be pushing back at this point on this. So we we tend to come to the story knowing the good guys from the bad guys, but think about it, if this was new, here's this guy and he's claiming to be God. And they say, we see here in in verse 13, Saracen said to Jesus, you are bearing witness to yourself, your testimony is not true. In other words, anybody can make a claim. And historically, people had made the claim. There had been false messiahs that had come before and claimed they were the promised one to deliver. And some of them had achieved some success or they'd achieved something that got people's attention and gained some of their trust only to, at some point, crash and burn and leave people no better off than they were before. Not only were there false messiahs who came, there were those who people wondered if they were Messiah, and in this case, usually it was because they were proclaiming the truth of God. And there was a fruit from their labors that it was quite obvious that God was with them and God was in what they were doing. John the Baptist is the one that comes to mind most readily, to me anyway, because we see in the scriptures that John the Baptist had on several occasions to tell people, I I am not the promised Messiah. I'm the one who comes before. In fact, the one who, I'm not worthy to even tie the sandals of the one who is to come. But because the Holy Spirit was in John, and he was proclaiming repentance and bringing people in the restoration, and there was fruit and people were attracted, some thought maybe he's the Messiah. John had to deny that. And so, for somebody to come and make the claim, I am the Messiah they rightly looked at their tradition just like we would in our culture. Anybody can make the claim, but in Jewish law, it required, if you're going to make a statement about yourself, you needed a corroborating testimony. So that's what they're saying. Look, you're testifying about yourself. And they say your statement is not true. True should probably be better. We would understand it as they're saying your testimony is not valid. And Jesus gives two responses here. Both are awesome. One's a little perplexing. Both are incredibly awesome here as he speaks to them. The first one we we see, let me just kind of read this, is Jesus speaks in verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. And here's his rationale. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. Now think about that one for a moment. Now put yourself on jury duty. The person on trial is coming, and he's standing up. He's the only one testifying and giving his alibi. And then and, and they say, the, the, te- the, the prosecuting attorney says, okay, anybody else, you know, we, this is not valid. And he said, hey, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. You need to quit me. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, we think that he's nuts. And, and so I, I was intrigued, so I looked at a couple of different commentators, and probably the most clear, most of them really didn't talk a lot about this, but one commentator um uh, that did speak about this and uh, made uh, this statement that, you know, I, I'm looking for something. It's a commentary. It's, you know, it's, it's this thick, and it has all sorts of, of, of Greek words and parsing words and all sorts of things that will help you if you have difficulty sleeping. Um, and he, he makes this claim about it. This defense would not work for anybody else Alright, that's the profundity of this whole thing It's kind of like That's kind of an obvious statement Because it's totally inadequate Except for it's true for Jesus Because he is God in the flesh But nobody knows that he's God in the flesh I think Jesus inserts this here Even knowing that that, that they can't believe that Because if he was just to go to give them what they need He would miss the opportunity Because if you're going to challenge God God's not going to defend himself The issue is not God hoping That someday you'll figure this out He is God whether we see it or not The fact that he enables us to see him is just an expression of his love and his grace to us. And so while that law that was in Jewish tradition is a valid one because we only know in part, and we are prone to uh, stretch things sometimes, it's necessary. But what would God himself say? I don't need anybody else to corroborate. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying. And the reason is he's saying, I know where I came from. He came from heaven from all eternity. He's going back to heaven after he goes to the cross and rises again. And is interceding on our behalf. He doesn't need any. So he's making that statement, but also knowing that they're not going to buy it, not only because it doesn't meet their standards, but because while he's making a statement that is true about himself, about God, his point is not just to be God, but to enable people to believe. So he answers their question and saying, okay, even if I testify about myself, I'm not the only one that's testifying. I testify about myself, and my Father who sent me also testifies about me. So he's saying, okay, you need two witnesses. There are two. It's me and and my father. And they knew very well that he was speaking of God the Father who was in heaven. That was kind of why they were a little bit um, ornery in their response to him. And they knew what he was saying. And their question that they bring back is, is, you know, they say, well, then show us your father. It's not an unreasonable question. If you claim to have an alibi that will exonerate you, people who have you in question are going to say, well, then produce your alibi. And that's essentially what they're saying. They were pressing him because, again, they didn't know, they didn't understand. And maybe they were hopeful that he would produce God uh, in in a way that they. But really, they were trying to prove that he he wasn't who he said that he was. He says to their question about where is your father. He says, "Look, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father." the unity that he has with the Father, that he is indeed God in, in this way. And he's also subtly pointing out something, is that while they were looking for somebody to come forward and speak right then and there, Jesus was pointing to the fact that God had spoken since Genesis 3 about him. Ever since the fall, the first claim that God would send one who was, the, you know, the, from the seed of the woman who would be the one who would redeem us. And all through the scriptures of the Old Testament, that there are prophecies of the coming Messiah that would deliver his people. And all of which point to Jesus, all of which Jesus fulfills to incredible, against incredible odds. Jesus is kind of pushing them and saying what he has said very clearly elsewhere. Look, you study these words, but you don't understand. You don't find God in them. They tell you about God, but you must relate to God in a personal way. And so he challenges them on this. Before I move on to the second point, I think it's also important that I note this. That Jesus is to be the light of the word, there are some who world well, Jesus. There are some who maintain that Jesus never actually made this claim or any of the other "I am" claims or any of the claims at all that would link him to being deity. Uh, they believe that Jesus was just another rabbi, uh, an extraordinarily gifted one in the level of Hillel in Jewish tradition. Some would add that he was probably a miracle worker because they believe that God had provided some who did miracle workers. Uh, but that overall, that Jesus was just kind of, in one sense, ordinary, but an extraordinary, ordinary rabbi. And that the, all these claims to Jesus being God and being united to God were inserted after his death by his disciples to create some new religion. And I'm not going to go into great detail as to why I believe that argument, while understandable, it, it still rings somewhat hollow, other than to say this. If it was true that Jesus was just another rabbi like Hillel, then why was he in such conflict with these people when Hillel was revered by them? Why were they in conflict with him? Why did they crucify him? If he was just one of them, just a little bit more talented. It's a question that if we wrestle with the idea of Jesus' claims to deity, we have to be able to answer that question because while there are people who do claim that Jesus never stated that he was God, no respected historian, whether Jewish, Christian, or Roman, denies that Jesus was crucified. So why did they kill him if he was just one of them? Now, we also need to see that Jesus, uh, he applies this universal claim that he is the light of the world to particular people's actions. So the second phrase that we see is, anyone who follows me. And this phrase is significant for a couple of reasons. First, it reminds us this, is that every promise and every benefit is contingent upon Jesus being who he says he is. See, I'm the light of the world, so therefore, anybody who follows me, here's the things that, here's the things that profit, so here's the things that will benefit them. But if he's not actually the light of the world, then these other benefits, all of the reasons for calling yourself Christian, to being, claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, makes no sense. It, it's contingent upon him being light of the world, being the living water, being who he says that he is. And the reason I point that out is because this statement, as subtle as it is, undercuts any idea of a mere moralistic reading or understanding of Christianity. You may not be clear as what I mean by that, what is moralistic understanding. It's, it's the reductionistic of, of the scriptures. into saying that really what it means to be a Christian is just to follow the teachings of Jesus. We're Or look at Jesus as our example and then try to be as much like Jesus as, as you can. Jesus is saying, those who follow me, there, there's a connection. There is a relationship that we're to have to Jesus, and he must be who he is for all the benefits to come true. Now, I'm not suggesting that there is no benefit for living according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. I suspect that if we, as a culture, believers and unbelievers alike, were able to do that much more, it would certainly be a much more pleasant place to live. But it does not resolve the fundamental problem that we have in the culture, which is the fundamental reason why, no matter how much we strive to live according to the teachings of Jesus, that it's not going to matter, we're still going to offend and hurt one another, is because it doesn't address the sin problem that's inherent in every one of us, and we're alienated from God. And we are told in the scriptures that if we are not in Christ, therefore we are enemies of God. And I don't care how capable you are, you're not winning that fight. But the whole point of Jesus coming into the world was to redeem a people through following him and connecting with him, that they would be reconciled with God, empowered by his spirit, and enabled to live that way. And so it's very important that we understand that the personal interaction, connection with Jesus Christ is vital to what Jesus is teaching and for what it means to be a Christian. And we need to hold fast to that in a culture that is more and more, even in the darkness, claiming Jesus merely as a teacher. And it's coming not just from the culture as a whole, but from churches, and churches that are not only claiming themselves to be Christian, but are seeming defiant, claiming that they are evangelicals, when they're not offering any good news at all, just good advice. But the second thing we need to look at in here is the fact that he says, follow, anyone who follows me it may be confusing to some in some way and it's important we understand that jesus is not making some new standard here you know as in our church particularly in these weeks as we're leading up to the 500th anniversary of the reformation if you haven't already heard you will hear just the whole idea of the importance of faith alone that we are justified we are saved we are in right relationship with god by faith alone and you may remember that when Jesus said, I'm the living water, anyone who believes in me, and then all the promises go through believing, and here John is saying, or that Jesus is saying that anyone who follows me. And it sounds like that those are two different things. The Reality is, is what is happening here is Jesus using these different words, this different language, John recording them, he's not giving two different standards by the way in which we relate to Jesus, he's just giving us more pieces of the puzzle so that we understand what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be uh, in union with Christ. Most succinctly I saw was from uh, New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger, who says this, for John, believing and following are virtually synonymous. If you look through all of John's writing, you see those words being interchanged. And it's not because there's faith plus, as if there's an additional step or additional standard but it's just elaborating on what genuine faith actually is in the scripture. And it resolves a tension that Christians have uh, in, in other ways as well, because so many Christians or so many churches and, and some Bible students get very confused by hearing Paul being dogmatic about it's by you know, grace right through faith alone. And then they hear James's words, and as James writes in, in James 2, 18, someone will say, you have faith and and I have works. So show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. So James is very clear that works are an important component of our walking with Jesus Christ. And then we hear Paul, and we think Paul's negating, saying, look, your works don't do anything. They don't add anything to your salvation. But we also need to understand Paul, in light of probably his most challenging letter, you know, in your face to people, was the letter to the Galatians, in which he was challenging people who had believed in the coming of Christ, and then they had believed that their life was to be lived out by their own strength. And he says, look, you, you clearly saw Christ crucified, you believe that, you received the Holy Spirit, are you gonna perfect yourself now by your own efforts? In other words, your own works that you're going to do. But probably the, the most succinct thing that Paul says there is the only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself through love. And so what Paul is saying is that, look, when he's saying it's faith alone that brings us in right relationship with God, there's a characteristic to of genuine faith that expresses itself to other people to people in need to encourage other believers to go to people who are hurting people um who would even be our enemies it expresses itself in works of help to other people those things do not bring the salvation but they validate the salvation that's why there's an old cliche that says look the faith that saves is it, uh, is it, we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves is never alone What we're seeing here is what John is showing, the importance that we have of connecting to Jesus Christ, but to being a follower of Jesus Christ means not just saying, I said the prayer, walked an aisle, got baptized, but it also means that we commit our lives to what he says, to seeing what he says is good is good, to seeing what he says is evil is evil, to living in accordance with his word, and that not to bring anything to us, but to give to him, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. It's to live the way he instructs us as an expression of love and gratitude to our God. And even in that, we find that God is still giving to us because it's through that that we find joy and life greater than we would otherwise. Finally, we see this statement because the things that are contingent, that for whoever follows, there is also a promise. And I shorthanded said, we'll have the light of life. But John is a little more clear. Jesus is a little straighter. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And whenever I hear this, I can't help but being reminded of something that C.S. Lewis wrote. He wrote this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen this morning, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's sort of what Jesus is promising here. He is the light of life, and it's vital that we see that He is the light and that our attention is drawn to Him and we see that light. But there's more going on here that He's promising that those who follow Him, those who recognize He's the light of life and then commit ourselves, not because we're believing, and then committing ourselves to walking with Him, walking in Him, who follow Him, He becomes a light through which or by which we are able to see the world. We see what we may have missed otherwise. In a sense, we would say the more of Jesus that we have, which is the more we know of Jesus, the more we're walking with Jesus, maybe the more light gets shined on the world that's around it. We see that which he's created is beautiful. We see that which we have done that has defaced his creation. We see the ugly and the beautiful in this world when we are able to see and most importantly by the light of Jesus Christ we see the world as God sees the world so in that sense Jesus is not only the light but he is the lenses by which we are to look at the world and it is for those who follow him seeing the world to identify what we see in the same way that God identifies not calling that which is evil good and not calling that which is good evil By being a follower of Christ, now seeing the world as he is enlightening it for us, we navigate, we value the world by that light, we value what he values, and we recognize what is in need of correction based on the light. Because not only that we're able to see, but he also illumines our values and everything else. But we also need to recognize here the light that Jesus shines is not only so that we can see the world better but so that we can see ourselves better as well because he's enlightening us about ourselves not just about our behaviors which are evident for all to see but about our attitudes about our values about our thoughts and we now have a light that can shine internally and we can evaluate that according to the ways of Christ as well and the more light that can shine on us Sometimes it can make us quite uncomfortable. We don't always want to see what's in there. But the purpose of God's shining light on us is not so that he can scold us and say, you know, see, you're far more rotten than you thought. The fact is, he is shining light so that we would understand that we are worse than we thought. But so that we will now take him up on the whole promise for which Christ has come to begin with, which is to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. It comes when we repent of it. We won't repent if we don't see it, if we don't know it. But when we're coming to repentance and recognizing that we could stand condemned for all of this stuff that's within us, it also then forces us to value the promise that comes in Jesus Christ, to believe the truth of the gospel that whoever confesses and believes, you're not condemned. And the process of repentance is part of what cleanses us, and so we become more and more like Christ, dying to sin and growing in his righteousness. And the only reason that that happens, the only way that happens is when we allow the light of Christ to shine not just on the world so that we can say, look how bad the world is, and you know. And so it's not worthy of people like us, but so we can recognize that, frankly, we're no better than the world, and yet the promise of God is that he will make us better than we are, ultimately, to become holy like Christ, and it's a process for all of our lives. So what we need to understand is this, is that walking in the light, living in the light, is not about our perfection. It's about our being honest with ourselves. And when we are honest with ourselves, change happens. We are changed. We become more bold, and we become more humble. Become more like Christ and yet we find that he has made us different from one another and, and unique in our own way we die to ourselves and we find ourselves when we're honest with ourselves which will only happen when we can see ourselves honestly by the light that comes of Christ it was not in this text but Jesus also teaches particularly in his sermon on the Mount, that is vitally important for us to understand is that he has an intention in this Because he says, not only am I the light of the world, but in Matthew chapter five, he says, you who are my followers, you are the light of this world. And that's an important promise, designation for us to embrace in a culture that many of us would describe as dark and getting darker. It's bringing fear and anxiety into the lives of many people causing some to think that the only response is to hide and protect themselves. It's to remember that the light of the world has commissioned us to be lights in this world, to be his light. And it's not just our little light, you know, my little light, shine your, you know, whatever, whatever the old song is. You definitely don't want to hear me sing it. So he's making the statement that when we walk with him, he not only dwells within us and shines through us, but he also radiates off of us as well. And he's still the light of the world, but we are that which is illumined. And when we look at the world and it's getting darker, it's important that we also understand this. There's an old saying that is very, very true, is that even the smallest light shines brightest in the darkness. And so when we tend to be in despair about the world that is going around us, the answer is not to withdraw, not to whatever the answer for those who are followers of jesus christ is to turn back to jesus christ and desire more of jesus christ to be enlightened more uh, about ourselves in which he shines more through us and we shine more in this world and and the dark light in the darkness even the smallest light in our house in, in our, our bedroom we have one of those little plug-in things where you end up getting more outlets than you would otherwise and which you know blows your circuit breakers and all that kind of stuff but on ours for whatever reason we have a tiny little blue light that you can't see, except at night, which is really quite annoying. This blue light, and yet, if I get up in the middle of the night, I can navigate our entire room without any difficulty on the basis of that tiny little blue light. There are times I even get dressed by that light. No comments. That we would never even notice and that's just the tiny light and so the darkness of of the world if we are convinced that it's getting darker it is a sad thing but it is not a cause to despair it should drive us back to christ not only that we would realize that he is our source uh, and our comfort and the light for us that he's using us and that if it's darker then those who are faithful to him will shine all the brighter So that the people in this world who are the mole people but find that they live in the mole people, and we're not unlike them, but the ones who are having their spiritual, seasonal affective disorder, they know that they're broken, that there is a need, they will see the light through the ministry, through the love, through the care, through the lives of those who are walking with Jesus Christ. That's the call of our lives. And that's the promise that should undergird us and drive us as we minister to our neighbors, and even as we minister to the nations, there's an old mission statement, and I'll finish with this A missional statement: "Is this is, you know, we're committed to reaching the nations, and and, and God is doing incredible things in other parts of the world. But the light that shines furthest shines brightest at home. And so, the response to the darkness, whether it's in our community, in our culture, or in the new world, is for us to just grow more in Jesus." Let him shine through us and recognize the promise that he's made. We will stand out against the darkness. And what's the worst thing that will happen? It won't get dark enough for us to be seen. It's not about us. It's about Christ, but he's made that promise to us. So let me close because I think I lost my challenge um, on the time thing. But anyway, let's, Father, we, we do thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the promises that it contains. We thank you for the promises that are associated with it and pray that you by your spirit would give us the grace to believe it. Renew our thinking and don't allow us to be conformed to the patterns of the world and not simply to despise the world but that we might be the vessels through whom you would save us. Enlighten us and light us up people would see Christ in us. We pray through Jesus. Amen. I invite like you to stand.